This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Many students move across national borders to attend university. Although the number of these globally mobile students is small compared to the total number of students enrolled in higher education, their numbers are increasing. And what we're seeing over the last decade or so is a a very significant increase in the number of globally mobile students. But the patterns are changing with more regional and south-south mobility. So the majority, around 48 percent, the receiving countries are in Europe, Um, although I would say that the numbers in other regions are also growing. Uh, that is changing, though, with, uh, particularly with China. China definitely sees itself as a, a major education hub, both for sending students but also receiving students, which can really change the equation. The role of scholarships in promoting these new patterns of student mobility is gaining attention. Scholarships actually can take a, a kind of leadership role, show the way. My guests today, Joan Dassin and Aaron Baxter, have recently contributed to a new edited collection entitled International Scholarships in Higher Education, Pathways to Social Change, which was edited by Joan Dassin, Robin March, and Matt Marr. Joan Dassin is a professor of international education and development and director of the master's program in sustainable international development at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. Aaron Baxter is an assistant professor in the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College and director of the MasterCard Foundation Scholars Program at Arizona State University. Joan Dassin and Aaron Baxter, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much, Will. We're delighted to be here. Thanks for having us. So what is the current landscape of international scholarships in higher education? I think the best way to think about that Uh, issue is to look at international higher education more generally. And what we're seeing over the last decade or so is a a very significant increase in the number of globally mobile students, somewhere uh, north of 4 million or so, according to the latest statistics. So that's the big picture, uh, but scholarships, whether they're funded by governments or private organizations uh, only support a very small percentage of this larger population of globally mobile students. So what is that percentage, do you know? It's roughly about 5%, uh, according to the statistics that we uh, have. Uh, It's a little hard to measure because the sources of data come from many different organizations and governments. It's a very fragmented picture. And are there any other institutions giving scholarships to international higher education students other than governments or the nonprofits? Typically what you see are national governments or private foundations which may operate uh, internationally. Uh, The big U.S. foundations are well known, like the Ford Foundation or Uh, MasterCard uh, based in Canada, MacArthur Foundation, and so on. Uh, But those are your uh, major sources of scholarship funds. Uh, Sometimes private individuals will fund 
students, other kinds of civic organizations, for example, the Rotary Club, which has many international branches, does give uh, scholarships to international students in selected countries. So if 5% or so, roughly 5% of these 4 million students are on scholarship, that means roughly 95% are fee-paying students. So this must be a huge source of income for some of these universities that are receiving students. Oh yes, and international education is very big business, uh, which by the way is one reason why colleges and universities in the United States are very concerned about uh, current uh, proposals under the uh, proposed tax plan, for example, to make graduate student uh, stipends and tuition waivers taxable, uh, that could be, uh, you know, really cut into uh, mobility issues. But the last figures that I saw were, for the U.S. alone, something like uh, an income of about $37 billion represented by international students on an annual basis. Wow, that's so much money. And that would be similar in the United Kingdom, in Australia, Canada. Um, those countries are also reporting billions in revenue from education and related services. So is, this, is the movement of international students generally from parts of the world, I don't know, Asia or Africa, um, to countries like Australia, Canada, the U.S., is that usually the direction of mobility? Yes, so the majority, around 48%, um, the receiving countries are in Europe. Um, some of the largest include the UK, Germany, France. There's also a pretty large percentage, around 21%, um, in the United States. Um, although I would say that the numbers in other regions are also growing. Um, so, for instance, um, recently there's been a pretty significant increase in the percentage of international students studying in Asian countries. That's up to about 7%. Um, also, the Middle East has seen considerable growth um, in the number of, of students that they're receiving. Yeah, I mean, just to give you some idea that, I mean, these patterns, they do trace old colonial patterns uh, so that people in Anglophone countries go to either Commonwealth countries or uh, come to the U.S., uh, Francophones go study in France and so on. And the, it's true that the global uh, flows, student flows, uh, are typically south to north uh, or east to west. Uh, that is changing, though, with uh, particularly with China, uh, which is now the uh, largest uh, net exporter of students. Over 50% of all globally mobile students are Chinese. Uh, China has outclipped uh, India and South Korea, which were among the biggest exporters, maybe a generate Japan for sure. Uh, so China is really owns this space uh, at the moment. And I just saw some recent data about the U.S. that in terms of destination countries for American students going overseas, China is now in sixth place, the only non-European country uh, in that, uh, in that uh, list, which includes the U.K., Italy, Spain, France, and Germany, and then China uh, is coming right along. So China is definitely sees itself as a, a major education hub, both for sending students, but also receiving students, which can really change the equation. I mean, personally, I did my PhD at the University of Hong Kong. So I was one of these American students that went in the reverse direction. 
Right, right. Well, you were fairly atypical uh, at that uh, at that point, I think. And uh, but certainly, China is making a big push. And this is uh, in this book that we just recently published. We do have a case study of the Chinese government scholarship program. And uh, the main point in that chapter is that uh, China is thinking long term, and this. Uh, reliance on international education for its best and brightest students is part of a 20-year vision of Chinese development. And so how do the scholarships play into that on their end? That they uh, use them very consciously to develop uh, talent and uh, home country expertise, particularly in uh, science and engineering fields where the U.S., for example, may still have the technical edge, but maybe not for long. Yeah, they're also placing a lot of emphasis on what is provided to entice students back at, at key points in time where there are economic opportunities and they can implement programs that help facilitate uh, that mobility, connect um, individuals who have studied internationally um, with opportunities and, and by providing um, those connecting resources, I think they're really enabling um, return um, at strategic points in time to really advance economic development. So this brings up the idea of like brain drain, right? Like so these students that go study abroad um, and the, the potential that they don't return, as you said, come back to their, their country. So you're saying China is developing certain ways of ensuring uh, all of these Chinese students that are studying abroad actually come back? Right. I mean, they're planning with uh, knowing the Indian experience, for example, which is uh, led to a lot of brain drain uh, in particularly in the early years. That's reversing now. Both uh, China as well as uh, India have experienced a kind of reverse brain drain because they have more attractive uh, labor options, uh, university positions, but also uh, scientific research capability that other developing countries may not have. Uh, so I think the picture that we see, and again in the book we have a whole chapter about brain drain issues, uh, the data show that it's the poorest countries that uh, unfortunately suffer from the worst brain drain. Uh, precisely those countries that need the most human capital and the most talented and trained people have the hardest uh, problems in retaining those people. Uh, because, of course, the infrastructure is poor, there, the, there may be very few employment opportunities, uh, and so on. And so you see the regions that are most affected by uh, out-migration of trained people or just non-return of foreign students uh, are still in sub-Saharan Africa as well as in the Caribbean and some small island states are, suffer the worst. But others are beginning to cash in on a more globalized labor market. In the scholarship program space, I think there are also shifts happening. So whereas you used to see um, uh, the, the patterns that were emerging um, immediately following the colonial period um, continued through international scholarships, you really do see a lot more south-south um, regional educational mobility opportunities supported um, 
by different funders. Uh, Commonwealth scholarships and fellowships plan would be one example of that. Um, but I think you, uh, the MasterCard Foundation Scholars Program is also supporting opportunities for African students across the African continent. So you see more and more examples of this, and I think that also relates to this um, conversation around brain drain. Um, what might be some of the, the opportunities um, related to how we design these programs, what opportunities are provided that, um, that still are expanding access to high quality education opportunities, but um, more regionally. Right. I think that's a great point, Erin, and I'd add to that. Uh, the, one of the dilemmas that you face when you are a donor or implementing programs is what is the trade-off between providing support for individuals, that's what scholarships typically do, versus strengthening institutions, uh, namely universities, uh, where uh, eventually more students could be trained. Uh, and donors and funders have gone back and forth uh, about this over many years. There are lots of uh, swings of the pendulum, uh, which is one reason why it's hard to track just the impact of scholarships, because they're really connected to uh, trend, cyclical trends in funding for higher education institutions more generally. Uh, and one of the uh, approximate causes of brain drain, say, in sub-Saharan Africa has been a lack of support for universities uh, in the region. And of course, what we're seeing now as more as the educational attainment levels increase and more you have more secondary school graduates looking for post-secondary uh, education, the universities, which were very uh, much decimated over in the 1980s as a result of structural adjustment policies and so on, simply do not have the uh, absorptive capacity to accommodate the demand. So you've got this funny situation where you have an exploding demand uh, in many developing countries for higher education, but the universities or the other post-secondary options just aren't there. Uh, and that is a bigger problem for development than simply the uh, population of globally mobile students, which is very small related to the overall pool of students who are seeking some sort of post-secondary education. So are donors and countries in the Global South investing heavily in the supply side? I think you see more of that than you did. Uh, we were uh, talking about uh, one of your questions raised the issue of, well, uh, the international community was mo more focused on primary education, uh, gender parity under the education for all paradigm, uh, the uh, Millennium Development Goals and so on. And what we've seen, in fact, has been a huge push for uh, increasing enrollments at the primary school level uh, in the last 15 years or so. But what has begun to happen also is an understanding that you can't privilege one uh, sector of education. You need the whole system. Because if you don't have universities, you don't have this absorptive capacity to uh, really create people who are competitive in their economies. Uh, and by the way, you also can't train teachers for primary education if you don't have universities or teachers' colleges. Uh, so I think there's a, a much more of an awareness now uh, that uh, education systems overall need to be strengthened to create 
sustainable economies and societies. And as a result, there's more interest in higher education per se and, and this globally mobile piece of it. And then scholarships specifically. Scholarships specifically, you know, tried and true. The Rhodes Trust was established in the early 20th century. Uh, we've, there are some longstanding programs, the Fulbright program in the U.S., Commonwealth Scheme, others that have been in existence for 50, 60, 70 years. So they're, they're venerable in that sense. Uh, and I think what you see uh, even more recently is a more conscious design of programs by uh, donors and administrators and uh, scholars and people who do research on this to uh, enhance the impacts. Because no matter what you do, no matter how much money you pour into international scholarships, you'll always fall short of the demand. And so you're talking about impact. So what sort of impacts do scholarships have? I mean, I, this is one of the main areas of your book is to look at what you call positive social change. So, you know, what what could that actually entail and how do scholarships help produce such change? So I think there's a couple of directions in which we can answer this. We can talk specifically about some of the, the pathways that we've identified and talk about in the book. Um, but maybe before getting to that, it's helpful to sort of break down um, the levels that are um, used to talk about the impact of scholarship programs or that we can we can look at outcomes at. Um, so there's there's the individual or more micro level analysis of outcomes, um, starting simply with with access and the the social mobility that that can um, be accompanied by, as well as the the technical skills, competencies, um, leadership related competencies. Um, and commitments that are developed throughout the educational experience by scholarship recipients themselves. And then there's the meso level or the more um, institutional organizational level at which individual recipients of scholarships eventually contribute. Uh, that can include the, you know, the having the ability to shape institutional development and outlook um, developing skills um, in areas that are particularly relevant to institutions or organizations um, in the sending countries. Um, and then there's you know, questions related to uh, the choices, the mobility choices that scholarship recipients make, as well as the critical mass that it takes to achieve uh, those kind of outcomes at the meso level. And then there's the macro level outcomes that are, of course, the most complex and challenging to actually um, identify and there's problems of attribution associated with with how we um, talk about these outcomes but um, those include sort of the socio-political economic um, civic development outcomes as well as um, impacts on international relations educational or public diplomacy um, those are some of the areas that a lot of these programs talk about and, and combine these various levels in um, you know the de the desired outcomes that they hope to achieve. So, like uh, on that on that macro level, it would be something like the the Fulbright scholarship trying to um, well, what's the what's the intended IR international relations goal? It's something about kind of giving like soft power of American foreign policy. Right, building networks, relationships, um, 
that are maintained over time and um, strengthen strengthen ties and goodwill between between countries. Right. I I think I, I just um, to amplify that just want to reinforce the point that we've been discussing that uh, globally mobile students this general population that we've been talking about uh, represent just a small fraction of international of students period in the world and uh, among those students those globally mobile ones we're talking maybe five percent who receive some sort of scholarship uh, and just to get an idea in the U.S. context, just to show you, again, looking at this recent data from the Institute of International Education, there are about 20 million students in U.S. higher education, undergraduates, graduate students, and so on. The number of American students, U.S. students who went abroad uh, last year, including most of them, a majority for short-term programs, less than six months, was about 325,000. Uh, so we're, when, when we're talking about international education in terms of physical mobility, there's a whole other discussion to be had about uh, online education and what that opens up in terms of the possibility for creating some of these positive social effects, such as intercultural understanding, uh, attaining language competence, uh, what it means to actually have to do project-based learning with people from a different culture and so on. But just focusing on that physical mobility, it's still reserved for a very tiny group, not always an elite. And that's where a scholarship program that is targeted at, at a particular kind of individual, someone who has, let's say, a leadership role in a rural community or uh, someone from an underrepresented or marginalized group or someone who otherwise would clearly not have had the opportunity for higher education even in his or her own country. Uh, that's where those kinds of programs can really make a difference because uh, you're providing this very rare opportunity to uh, people who otherwise wouldn't have access. So what are some of the challenges to the current scholarship programs that you've looked at? We need more money. <laughs> There's, uh, as I said, the, the demand always outstrips the supply. And, uh, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. I worked for many years for the Ford Foundation, and with, they always track the number of uh, over-the-transom requests and uh, just individuals who were seeking funds. And this is a foundation that provides mostly institutional support to organizations. And by far, the largest demand was always from uh, people looking for scholarships, including domestic students. Uh, so, and, and I think the, the cost of higher education in many countries, certainly in the United States, but even elsewhere, public institutions uh, are getting to be harder to maintain for all kinds of reasons. So, you know, generally, uh, young people are really in a bind everywhere because everywhere in the world, the premium on higher education is high. Uh, the more education you have, the better you'll do uh, in employment, and your country wants you to be able to contribute to the economy, and yet, how are you going to finance that education? So that's the big picture virtually everywhere, and I think that... Um, 
uh, scholarships, therefore, will never be enough to meet this demand, uh, but the funds that we do have can be used in, in creative ways. Speaking from you know, the program implementation side um, and challenges that students who are recipients of these scholarships face, um, I think they're at the heart of some significant challenges when there is um, misalignment between you know, the objectives of a particular program and the educational experience provided and then the opportunities available um, upon program completion. Um, so if there's you know, really high expectations to um, return and contribute in particular ways, but those pathways aren't facilitated within the structure of the program or there's significant um, contextual challenges that make that difficult. I think the, um, the dilemmas that students who are receiving these scholarships face um, in the midst of you know, the, these expectations and the realities of their experience are, are really difficult. And I think that, that makes um, really thinking through um, these design considerations in um, really aligning the expectations and objectives of a program with the, the support structures um, that are put in place and the opportunities that are provided is, is especially crucial. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, t- I totally agree with that from the program implementation point of view. Again, the bigger picture is that uh, there's a convergence in both developing countries as well as uh, industrialized countries that uh, you're kind of in a box. You need education in order to get good employment, but it's no guarantee. Uh, and we see uh, you know, youth unemployment around the world is three times greater than unemployment more generally. Uh, And in developing countries in particular, uh, you have societies where 70, 80% of the whole population is under the age of 35. And those are people for whom educational opportunity, whether they come in the form of a scholarship uh, or access to an online program or some way of getting the skills and knowledge needed to succeed in a very competitive economic environment is absolutely critical, not only for them as individuals, but for the whole society. Uh, so that's why I think that scholarships actually can take a, a kind of leadership role, show the way that uh, there are, there's so much talent in societies that is being left by the wayside. Uh, particularly among young people who have energy, who want to contribute, and they can't figure out how to do that. So well-targeted scholarship programs can, and that's why a lot of programs focus on leadership uh, and social activism, uh, advocacy skills, uh, issues that are not strictly academic uh, and are not strictly related to a particular field or discipline. And that's very different than... Uh, what might have been the case in the 1950s. You came, or the 60s even, you came, you studied engineering, you went back, and you were a leading engineer. That was the paradigm. Uh, but now I think, the, uh, related to the expectations that Aaron was speaking about, we expect our scholarship students to do everything, you know, to, to learn advanced engineering techniques. Oh, and by the way, run for parliament. And by the way, it would be nice if they were the first 
from their ethnic minority to, uh, you know, run an NGO, and maybe they could also volunteer, and so on. So there are a lot of there are a lot of expectations that are when when placed on the shoulders of one individual can become quite overwhelming, actually. So last week, the U.S. Supreme Court um, basically allowed Trump's travel ban to go into full effect, uh, and that means you know people from these six. Muslim majority countries will be prohibited from traveling to the USA. Do you think this will impact um, the mobility of higher education students and, and maybe the the scholarship students specifically? I think it's uh, hard to say based on empirical evidence because uh, the last uh, the the ban, the prior two versions, and now even this third one. Uh, which the Supreme Court is allowing to go into effect while lower court challenges are still being heard. Uh, so we don't actually know the ultimate resolution of that. But all of this transpired uh, midway through a selection cycle uh, on the North American academic calendar. So, for example, uh, at my university, we're just now starting to look at applications for 2018-2019 academic year and we're girding ourselves for a distinct possibility that overall there's been a chilling effect on international students uh, because not only the perennial issues of cost uh, and access the and not only being from those six countries on the list, plus Venezuela and uh, you know a few other random countries, uh, not only the the specifics of the ban, but the overall hostility toward migrants, refugees, immigrants in general makes Canada look very appealing at the moment. Including the fact that uh, Canadian education is at least twenty percent cheaper. Uh, so the U.S. is is at running a tremendous risk of uh, cutting into that extremely valuable source of revenue. So it will become very counterproductive. But we don't know yet exactly what the impact will be uh, empirically in terms of how many people, and you'll never be able to track how many people just decided not to, not to apply. We, we can track the enrollment figures. And already it looks like even last year, the rate of growth uh, of international students in the U.S. has begun to decline. It's still growing, but at a lower rate. What about things like Brexit in the U.K.? Will, I mean, will this have an impact on the mobility of higher education students? Well, I think the U.K. will be facing the same dilemmas that we do. They depend on not only international students, but uh, EU uh, labor all over the UK, you know, anybody who's been to London recently knows that. Uh, and they already, we know that the UK is paying a very dear price for this moment of political backlash. And we're going to, we, we're going to see, but you know, the UK after the US is a very popular destination, uh, but they've been tightening visa regulations for some time. Uh, as well. So I think what we will see, and we see, and it's not only, of course, the U.S. and the U.K., we also see this, you know, the rise of uh, parties on the, the right and this wave of populist nationalism elsewhere in Europe. Uh, you know, Germany and France are sort of the bulwarks, but we see in Eastern Europe and Hungary and Poland and uh, the, 
we, we just see, uh, even in the Netherlands, even in the Nordic countries, you see this kind of backlash. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see what this does to the global mobility patterns. But we mentioned, Aaron mentioned at the beginning, you see the emergence of these regional hubs. So, uh, and those are fairly open cities or open places relative to what we see in Europe and the US. So Malaysia, your part of the world, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Hong Kong, uh, these are areas, the, these are places where, you know, there can be a lot of international student mobility. The Gulf states is another region, you know, um, Qatar, uh, UAE, uh, these governments invest an enormous amount in higher education. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, but recently in, in uh, Doha, there's a place called Education City, where you, it's really quite astonishing, but major U.S. universities, Carnegie Mellon, uh, uh, I can't remember, I think uh, Georgetown, uh, Cornell Medical School, have these I- incredible campuses and they pay students, they pay students to come. So this perversely may have this impact of hastening the breakup of these just strict South-North patterns. I guess I would just add that, you know, it's, it's I think, hard to, if you're someone who believes in the potential for international mobility to really, you know, contribute to intercultural understanding, um, that seeing seeing these bans and these limitations on mobility at a time um, when there is movement in, in the direction of these isolationist tendencies and it's, it's something that can counteract that, um, to see it kind of being reinforced and limited is, is definitely discouraging. Right. I, I would just add, by the way, that I think this is a, uh, it was in this climate and kind of uh, in, we started the book before pre-Brexit and before the U.S. election. Uh, But I think that this topic becomes even more important because we're interested in the flow of people and ideas and we're interested in marshalling the strongest case that we can, investigating what we know and what still remains to be understood and known and documented about the beneficial effects and uh, uh, and about the, the tremendous potential that we see and, and actuality that we see of people with international educations going back to their home countries and truly making a difference in any number of ways. And even though there's still a lot of gaps in our knowledge and understanding, overall we came out of this multi-country study uh, with a renewed conviction of of this hundred-year-old idea of international education, many hundreds of years, but at least that in the, in the modern phase. So I want to just say that our, our understanding reinforces how beneficial this kind of uh, work is. Well, Joan Dassin and Aaron Baxter, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Joan Dassin is Professor of International Education and Development at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. Aaron Baxter is an Assistant Professor in the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. The book, International Scholarships in Higher Education, will be published by Palgrave Macmillan. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. 
Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zhong. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brent, and I'll see you next week.